Welcome to Accelerated. I'm your host, Vitaly Golem. On this second season of the podcast, we are hearing from some of the global leaders in everything electric and autonomous, moving us quickly into the future. On this episode, we speak with Andres de Leon, the CEO of Hyperloop Transportation Technologies. He first joined the company as its chief operating officer before taking the helm in 2019. Prior to Hyperloop, he built an illustrious career leading many initiatives in energy and infrastructure around the world. We talked about how the crazy idea of Hyperloop became a full-fledged industry, Hyperloop TT's unique crowdsourcing and business models, key technologies that had to be developed, and most importantly, when we can hitch a ride on a Hyperloop pod at the speed of sound. Here's our conversation with Andres. Andres, thank you very much for being on Accelerated. It has been my pleasure to work uh, with, alongside you for quite a while now, and uh, I think uh, the company has a fascinating story, and, and you do personally, so I wanted to share that uh, with the listeners today. So why don't we start at the beginning? Tell us a little bit about your career and how you became the CEO of Hyperloop TT. Well, um, I started uh, my professional career um, in a financial department of a construction company, a big multinational company in Spain while I was studying law. Uh, then when I finalized my study, uh, I continued working there and I did an MBA from the Instituto de Empresa, there is a famous university in Spain, uh, a management university. And from there, I was there until I became deputy CFO uh, and then I was hired by a big industrial group in Spain, uh, Ergon Group. To, to become the new uh, general manager, to become the new CEO. And I was there uh, working in different, in different parts of the world. I was running the US operations first in Vermont, then I come back to, to Europe and I run the whole uh, organization uh, from, from Spain. We had, uh, it was an industrial corporation with factories in Spain, in US, and also commercial operations in South America and, and also in Europe. And there, uh, when I was uh, much younger than today, uh, I met uh, Dirk Alborn, the founder of Hyperloop TT, because I bought 51% uh, of one of his companies in Italy. Okay, So we started our relation there, then basically he went to live to the US and we, we bought the rest of the company. And I left uh, this group and I started my own venture uh, with uh, some investors. We create an industrial group uh, with operations in Europe, in South America, and also in America. And finally, what happened is that some years later, I reconnected with Dirk. Dirk explained me about the amazing project that he was working on, so I decided to basically to close some of my business, to sell other parts, you know, and to concentrate on this uh, opportunity. You know, I thought that it was amazing, not only uh, what they were doing, you know, what we were trying to do, but also how we were doing. And, you know, so I, I was one of the first contributors. I became the CEO uh, very soon. And then after five years working, we decided that the company was at a completely different stage where it needed more uh, industrial background, industrial experience, construction. So we decided that I became the CEO and did become the chairman of the company. 
So it's a very fast forward uh, through your career, through your illustrious career. Now, um, so most people have heard of Hyperloop. Uh, probably everybody's heard of Hyperloop, but uh, all they know, really, most people, is that Elon Musk published a, a white paper in 2013. Tell us what happened next and how do we get to 2021? Well, you know, when Elon uh, published the document and the white paper, he said that he had no time to develop it, um, to develop this project, and he encouraged other companies to do it. Uh, we were part of an incubator funded by NASA and Irvine Institute build companies in a completely different way, to build companies using crowdsourcing. So what happened to us is that we decided, we thought that this was a great idea, you know, to put it in the platform. So we put the, pro the project in the platform, we do a call to action, and immediately we have like 200 people around the world that were really interested about collaborating with us and helping us. So long story short, Today we've got more than 800 people, we've got more than 50 companies collaborating with us. We have the biggest crowdsourcing platform in the world. We have been defined by Harvard Business School like the new way of building companies of the 21st century. And of course we have been working a lot, you know, to arrive to the point that we are ready to build the iProduct. And that's basically the history of these seven years that the company has been working and that has bring us to a moment that we are basically very, very focused on our next commercial prototype that will be the first time that a real commercial prototype will be built. So I want to come back to this unique crowd, uh, crowd development uh, structure that the company has pioneered and uh, HBS, Harvard Business School, has done two studies on already. Uh, but I guess the big question that everybody has is when can they buy a ticket and ride the Hyperloop? When do you think that's going to happen finally? Well, you know, as I was saying before, right now we are uh, we are working to do the first commercial prototype. It's uh, five kilometers with an advanced mobility center. Uh, we are working towards the financing of the whole project. So if everything goes well and we are capable to, to finalize our, uh, our funding, uh, you know, for I'd say in the next three to four months or five months, you know, then basically we need two years to build um, this first commercial prototype. And in this first commercial prototype, it's not going to be just a test track. It's going to be commercial and we want to have people riding the Hyperloop. So people will be able to go there to buy a ticket and to ride the first Hyperloop that humanity has developed, you know. So I'd say that we are two and a half, maximum three years away from that. And, and, you know, and that's where uh, we would like, you know, to have uh, all kind of people around the world uh, traveling and, and visiting and, and seeing this opportunity. So I think for most people, it's, it's going to be a little bit of a surprise that in, in two to three years, they'll be actually able to ride a Hyperloop. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, they've heard of Hyperloop, but let's talk about the experience. What is a Hyperloop? What can they experience? What can they expect to experience as a passenger on the system? Well, we have been working uh, very hard to create a, a, a new mode of transportation, you know, that can improve drastically the passenger experience. I think that everybody understands that in today's world, or before the pandemic, you know, we were traveling just because we have to travel, but nobody enjoyed the experience anymore, you know. 
uh, traveling is not a it's not a funny thing. Just arriving to destination was the nice thing to do. So we have uh, improved drastically that uh, we want to create uh, this kind of naked passenger experience that we call it that you could go from point A to point B. Uh, fully naked without nothing, you know, with a very seamless experience, you know, and uh, basically people when we are trying that people can go through the station again with this uh, frictionless experience and then traveling the capsule is not going to be very different than traveling in an airplane, okay, of course a human body uh, feels the acceleration so we are trying to keep the acceleration in the range, you know, that is good for 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 human body and that you don't have uh, any side effects, you know. And it will be very very similar to be traveling in an airplane, but it's an airplane that goes in the ground, you know, in a low pressure environment. That basically we duplicate or we replicate, you know, what is the environment of an airplane uh, flying at high altitude. And, and speeds, it's actually faster than uh, commercial airlines fly. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, our system has been developed uh, from the beginning, thinking to, you know, with the idea of arrive to 1,200 kilometers per hour. So basically that means that, yes, it will be uh, faster uh, than an airplane. But um, I have to say also that the average speed will be more in the 800. So it's going to be very similar. Yeah, 800 kilometers an hour. You know, so it's going to be very similar in terms of timing to 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 airplanes, but of course going from city center to city center. So it's going to be a much more efficient use of our time. Now, in California, for a long time, there was a project to do high-speed rail, and ultimately it failed because every little town that the rail was going through, they wanted to stop. Even if it's a 500-person uh, uh, farming little village, let's say, um, and it didn't work out, and the cost just uh, skyrocketed. How is uh, Hyperloop TT going to solve something like that? So, for example, this dream of going from San Francisco downtown to Los Angeles in 40 minutes at these speeds, um, city center to city center, like you said. But how do you deal with uh, kind of the right of way and, and the construction, all these uh, nuances and bureaucracy and all these pieces? How, what makes Hyperloop TT different? Well, I think that what makes Hyperloop TT system different is that it's a much more a smaller infrastructure. It's more adaptable to the terrain. Uh, we go on pylons, so we don't uh, split the territory in two. We are also analyzing the infrastructure from the point of view that when we are in the city, uh, you know, we create something that is nice for the environment. So instead of, uh, you know, splitting the, the neighborhoods in two, you know, we are trying to make that the infrastructure is kind of like the river in the history of humanity, you know, a place where people can live around and, you know, can use it. We're giving um, additional uses to the infrastructure, like uh, bike paths, uh, like vertical gardening, things that we believe that will improve drastically the public acceptance of an infrastructure like that. That being said, it's clear that when you are thinking a corridor, you are thinking an infrastructure corridor. So you need to have, you know, the, you need to convince the communities and you need to convince the, the governments, you know, that this is a good solution. But the main advantage of the Hyperloop in relation with high-speed rail Basically, is the uh, well. There are two main advantages. 
systems, no? First of all, in the Hyperloop TT system, we are talking about a system that is fully sustainable. We generate more energy than we consume, and we generate that energy based on renewable energy. So we are talking of the first mode of transportation in the history of humanity that is going to be net zero emissions in terms of uh, carbon emissions. Okay. But in addition to that, and very important, we're talking ab about a system that is profitable by itself, doesn't rely on public subsidies. So it could be fully financed by private initiative and has a payback period that makes sense, you know, that the private initiatives can finance and it still make a good, uh, a good return, you know, on the investment. I come from a country that is Spain, that is the second biggest country uh, in the world in kilometers of high-speed rail. It's also, uh, after China, it's also, of all the European countries, is the one with the lowest capex per kilometer. The line that is more successful is Madrid-Barcelona. Madrid-Barcelona has a payback period of 100 years, you know, whether in the study that we have done, in the feasibility study that we did in Great Lakes for Cleveland-Chicago-Pittsburgh connection, we're talking that in 25 years we could have a, the payback period. So, you know, it's a, trying to summarize it's an infrastructure that is more sustainable, it's more adapted to the terrain and adapted to the communities, you know, it's smaller and it's much more efficient and from the point of view of profitability, it's much more profitable than that the high-speed rate yeah i mean it, it's uh from from the standpoint of infrastructure and that's kind of a complicated topic on its own uh, most people don't know how infrastructure projects get financed and built and all that so i wanted to come back to that in a second i'm really excited to share something a long time in the making with you my first online course. Over the years, I've trained thousands of founders through my book, Accelerated Startup, and my infamous Pitching Like a Boss workshops and keynotes. Like I've done for thousands of founders, I will teach you how to pitch like a boss. And for the first time ever, I will be doing it in a cohort-based online course. This is the world's most comprehensive and intensive course for entrepreneurs and future founders on pitching. It will help you craft the perfect pitch for investors and customers. It will also help you master public speaking. Get funded, communicate your vision to grow your team and dramatically improve sales of any product. Check out golem.net slash pitching. That's G-O-L-O-M-B dot net slash pitching for more information. See you there. Um, talk a little bit about uh, you know the propulsion system, the the main, the vacuum environment. How do all these things work together? So uh, basically, what we do is we create a low pressure environment. It's not fully vacuum; it's a, it's a low pressure environment. And because we create this low pressure environment, we don't have the resistance, the air resistance, and we don't have to play against the aerodynamics. And basically, what happened is that we can move the capsule uh, in, a, a, in a much uh, simpler way and with, much le uh, with less uh, energy consumption. Okay? Our system is based in a, in a linear synchronous motor for the propulsion and we have our own proprietary uh, passive magnetic levitation technology. This passive magnetic levitation technology was developed in the 90s in Lawrence Livermore lab we took it, the team that developed it, you know, started to work with us, uh, Richard Pors and his team, and they were part of our crowd. And what we did is we adapted to, um, 
to a low pressure environment and we solve some of the problems that they had in the past. Okay? It's a system that is very, very interesting because you don't need to identify the track in order to levitate. The levitation is based on the motion. You have permanent magnets over an aluminum track, you know, that creates this levitation without the need of energy. So basically we're talking about a tube with a low pressure environment. Instead of a train, a capsule that can carry from 32 to 50 people, and you know that it's propelled by a linear synchronous motor and then has passive magnetic levitation to, to continue levitating. So the capsule itself is maybe like a small airplane, 30 to 50 people, but closer to like a bus, right? That's the capacity of a, of a bus. Yeah, basically it's like a small jet or, or a small airplane, you know, or, or like a bus. And that's also very good because you can adapt, you can put a capsule in the, in the tube every 40 seconds, the headway is every 40 seconds, but of, in the peak hour, but of course, uh, outside of the peak hour, you could be uh, putting the capsule every 15 minutes, you'd be giving a very, very good service to the communities, and, and you know, you have a good level of occupancy on the system. But that's one of the biggest problems of high-speed rail, no? that when you are in a in the peak hour is full, but then, you know, uh, outside of the peak hour, uh, you are talking that maybe you have occupancies of 40% or something like that. So the overall occupancy is no more than 60, even 70. So in our case, we can adapt uh, the, the capsules and the frequency of the capsules, we can adapt it to the, to the demand. And even more important than that, uh, there will be some capsules that could go from point A to point C and others can go to point B, to point D, you know, so basically, you, depending on the demand that you have on the capsule, you can solve also that problem that you were talking before about how do you serve, you know, the small communities. Of course, it's not about uh, stopping every, every second, it's more about uh, adapting, you know, the travel to the demand that you have uh, in the station at that moment. So the idea is that you have uh, tubes that go each direction and then you have these exit exit tubes for different stations so you can really uh, schedule very quickly and very tightly. You can schedule a lot of different... Um, I mean, it, it's, it sounds, um, I think, getting this point across, it sounds more like a roller coaster, loading a roller coaster very quickly and as soon as it's full, you can let it go. Uh, and then you wait for the next uh, for the next one. But here, you know, you can load it very quickly. It's a, it's not as big as a as, as even a small airplane that loads 170 people in a 737. Yeah, basically in our station, you could load the people every seven uh, minutes, and you have different capsules being loaded at the same time. And every 40 seconds, you can put the capsule in the in the tube. It's not going to be the same experience that a roller coaster because, as I was saying before, no, we are trying to. You won't feel to, it. <laughs> yeah, you won't feel it. You know, you will not have an acceleration like in a roller coaster or something like that. And you know, the most important thing of the whole system is the efficiency. It's not only the speed and how that is. It's the overall efficiency of the system. No, that that has been our main focus: overall efficiency and sustainability. So the system is covered in photovoltaics and uh, talk a little bit about the energy use and, and the difference with the maglev that people know that is electric but uses a lot of energy. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how uh, Hyperloop is the reverse of that. Yeah, but look, uh, maglev is a great, it's a great product but only has one problem. No? You need to electrify all the track and you have a very high consumption of energy. Okay, very high consumption of energy. So 
uh, basically one of the biggest problems of the maglet have been that you know uh, the, the train in japan you know every year they have some problems of maintaining the average speed and again uh, you need to it's not only that you need to have a lot of consumption of energy is that you need to have a very stable source of energy or you start to have problems okay our technology is completely different from conception at the end of the day what you are doing is when you are reducing the 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 air you know from the tube you are creating this low pressure environment so first of all when a train moves i'd say that 80 per 85 90 percent of the of the energy consumption is is because of the aerodynamics okay whether here you are you are using a small part of the energy to create the vacuum that is not very expensive and not very uh, uh, it's not very big in terms of uh, of energy consumption, okay? And then you don't have that uh, resistance from the aerodynamics. In addition to that, we are levitating without the need to electrify the track because we have this passive magnetic levitation, you know, system. So that allows us that we will need to electrify the track only in the areas where we will have propulsion, okay? So basically that um, reduces drastically also the consumption of energy. And the pods themselves have the battery, right? Yeah, the pod has the battery, but the battery serves basically to the main elements of the of the pods, you know, to to the, to the you know to the different elements, the air life system, and you know different uh, systems that require energy, you know, that you have the battery on the pod. Uh, today, uh, the battery the batteries of today they are not. Uh, they are not developed in well enough, you know, to be able to do the propulsion of an hyperloop system. But uh, our view is that that will change in the future. You know, our battery technology is changing drastically, and that could be could change uh, very soon. Okay, at that moment we will be able to propel the the system from the batteries, and it will be even even cheaper and more simple. No, but today we rely on a linear synchronous motor, you know, on the track to propel the capsule. Very good. And then the experience inside the pod. Obviously, the the tra the uh, the tubes are sealed. There's no sunshine in the tubes. Um, and then, of course, the pod uh, has nothing to look at. There's no windows, uh, which uh, there are no windows, and that um, that's a big advantage as far as cost of building it. But uh, what are the customers? You know, for those thirty forty minutes that they're in the capsule, what are they looking at? What's that experience like? Well, that was one of, it's very curious you talk about it, because that was one of our main uh, questions, well, main questions, first questions, you know, when, when we started to develop this, no? what is going to be the sensation of the people to, to go in a place that has no window? So we basically decided to duplicate a, a, an environment that people is used to, and we developed what we call it augmented windows. Augmented windows is a pattern that we, in a, a product, you know, that we developed where basically you have some uh, windows based on uh, augmented reality and virtual reality windows. And with a motion tracking, uh, when you move your head, you know, you have the different perspective. Could be even a multi-viewer system. So depending on who uh, wants to see one thing, you know, you could be seeing what is happening outside of the tube or you could be or, or the passenger that is close to you could be uh, looking at, you know, and uh, travel through Jurassic Park, no? So it's also a way of entertaining and all of that. 
What has been very curious about this is that we have discovered also that this technology could be applied to other modes of transportation because windows are a problem. No? Every time that you do a hole in a structure, you need to reinforce and you need to gain more weight. Okay? But with this system, we allow uh, to have a fuselage for the capsule that is much more simple okay? and that we don't need to reinforce with, you know, around the, around the windows. And then we have this very light uh, system, you know, of uh, augmented reality windows or virtual reality windows uh, that works quite well. And you don't have to do a small window. You can do the whole, the whole capsule if you wanted to, like a flexible OLED. Yeah. Absolutely. You, know, you, can, you can do, uh, we have different flexible configurations because the whole idea of how do we uh, think about the capsule is we, we are trying also to innovate there no we we, we don't want to create a, a you know we don't believe that uh, you need to categorize the traveling business first uh, tourists you know we believe that you need to categorize the the travel in what are you doing you know in in that moment uh, you are the a completely different person when you are traveling with friends to see a soccer match, for instance, or when you are traveling with your family and your kids, or when you are traveling with uh, colleagues, with your peers, you know, your work uh, peers, you know, and you want to work and you want to have a, a video conference at the same time that you are talking. So we believe in the multi-purpose um, space. So we have developed around with Brisbane and Goody and with some of the big, uh, you know, designers, companies in the world, a completely different use of the of the space. I can't wait for the Disney partnership, and you can uh, go out into you know Star Wars world and uh, <laughs> shoot in the in the Hyperloop from uh, San Francisco here to to LA to Disneyland and and start the Disneyland experience early. That would be nice. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like you can apply the same thing in in aviation. There's been a lot of uh, the windows have always been a problem. They had a lot of weight to the planes and and all these issues. And for a long time, they've been concepts, but uh, Sounds like uh, Hyperloop's technology can be applied to that. It already exists. Definitely. A lot of our technologies related to passenger experience can be uh, applied to the actual modes of transportation. Uh, for instance, we have one of the one of the top rail manufacturers in Europe, you know, applying to HS2. The part that had to do with passenger experience was based on some of our technologies, you know. So, Definitely, you know, could be applied to rail, could be applied to airplanes, could be applied to, to buses. So some of the findings and of the technology discoveries and of the technology development that we have done through, uh, through these uh, seven years can be definitely applied to the legacy transportation business. When companies start to catch fire and blitzscale and look for capital to fuel that growth or look to find the right exit strategy, they often seek the counsel of investment bankers. At Drakestar Partners, we work with some of the leading companies in global tech on capital raises, M&A, corporate carve-outs, SPACs, and much more. And we're pretty good at it. Our team of over 100 technology sector experts across nine offices in six countries is comprised of not only career bankers, but experienced executive venture investors and technologists. Drakestar Partners is the number one ranked and fastest growing mid-market investment bank across US and Europe. While I focus on mobility and energy transition sector, along with all things Silicon Valley, my partners from the Pacific to the Atlantic and around the world lead in software, media, communications, and everything in between. Learn more about us at drakestar.com.
Now, I want to come back to, to the business model and to the uh, development model of Hyperloop TT because it's highly unique. I mean, normally company, you know, team has an idea and a hot market. They go raise some money and they go start uh, hiring people and, and solving those problems and, <clears throat> and building the solution. In the case of Hyperloop TT, it was always a relatively small team and even today as far as I understand. And um, there was a crowd element that you talked about a little bit. Talk a little bit more about how this came about, how does it work, and um, how do you interact and what kind of people you were able to get involved in this project? Well, this is really one of the parts that I like more about this project, not how we are doing it. You know? The crowd is very, very powerful because at the end of the day, what you have is you have the experience of people, you know, that that sometimes a normal startup cannot uh, accept to this kind of people, you know, you don't have access to this kind of people. No matter that you are well uh, financed or well funded, uh, may, there are some kind of people that they want to take the risk, you know, to, to leave their job and, and work in, in a startup environment. But if you go to them and you say you don't need to stop your, your work, you have been working for 30 years in a big corporation or whatever, great, fantastic. Just give me uh, 10 hours of your time every week, you know, to to give us your experience and your capabilities, you know. So that's very, very powerful because at the end of the day, first of all, you are not limited by the cash burning of the company, you know, because you are creating value. So you could have different projects at the same time for solving this uh, one of the problems, you know, and you are always learning and you are always creating value, you know, and you are... Uh, as you are creating value, you are sharing that value with the people that is creating that value, giving them equity, giving them stock options of the project. So basically, you have a system that you don't have the limitation of the cash burning, okay? So you could go much faster and you leverage on the expertise of the people. So of course, you arrive much, much faster, you know, to, to conclusions. Uh, like that, you know, if you see ourselves basically with one third of the money that our biggest competitor has raised, we are fighting with them, you know, in the in the development of the technology. But even more important than just individuals, we have applied also these systems to companies. No? And, you know, we have more than 50 uh, companies that are collabor has been collaborating with us in different moments or are collaborating right now with us in exchange of equity of the project. And that's very powerful because then you don't have only the expertise of the people. You know, you have the expertise plus all the support of the organization and the internal way of working. And, you know, so you learn a lot from this radical collaboration. So we are building the Hyperloop uh, like this. And I think that that has been a clear uh, reason why we have been able in seven years, you know, to be ready to build okay, a, a complete Hyperloop commercial system. And in total, uh, so you have uh, about, what, 150 people in the company plus 800 individual contributors plus 50 companies that have contributed IP and are <clears throat> active partners to HTT. I mean, that's a, that's a big community. It sounds like you've built uh, more of an industry and not just a company at this point. Definitely. We are building a, a, an industry. You know, well, first of all, we have built the biggest crowdsourcing platform in the world, no? but we are building an industry. And each of our technological partners, when they collaborate with us, they co-develop the technology together with us. 
uh, we will be, we'll retain the IP of that technology because we are paying with equity of the whole project. But they will be the ones later on, you know, um, uh, selling parts of the technology to the final customers because we, as a, it's not only how we are doing it. Our business model is to be a, a technology license or a network orchestrator. So we will be licensing the technology to the infrastructure operator and to the transportation operators. And we will have, you know, the technological companies that will be the one, our technological partners will be the one providing the goods, you know. So that's a model that is a win-to-win and, you know, that is working very well and, and that has allowed us to accelerate drastically, you know, in the development of the technology. Yeah, and, and I want to talk more about the business model. When uh, trains were first being developed across Europe and U.S., uh, the the companies, you know, they built their own railroads, their own private railroads, and uh, they own that infrastructure. We're not in 1800s anymore, so it's a little bit uh, more difficult to get right away and all these things happening. Um, talk a little bit about the business model for HTT and, and why you chose to do it this way and what are the advantages of uh, doing this versus trying to do everything yourself and and own the tracks and own the pods and run the service and everything else? Well, we, we wanted to create a company that was very efficient from the point of view of capital um, capital use, you know, and from and that could give a very good profitability and return on investment to our investors, okay? So if you are familiarized with this concept of network straighter, uh, basically we are kind of like the Uber of the Hyperloop, no? Or the Airbnb of the Hyperloop industry that we are creating. So we have a, a low asset, you know, we have, we are very lean, uh, we don't have a, a lot of assets, you know, and we can be very efficient in the way that we commercialize. So from one side, we have this financial side of the equation, you know, that we make a company much more attractive from the point of view of investors, okay? But second, and even more important, this accelerate drastically our the, the implementation of the Hyperloop. At the end of the day, everybody that is in Hyperloop TT, we have one goal, that is seeing the Hyperloop build it around the world, okay? And in order to do that, instead of us having to deploy tons of capital, tons of infrastructure, you know, of companies around the world, we decided that the same way that we have built uh, the technology together with our technological partners, we can implement the technology together with our commercial partners. And in the implementation, we can use the public or private infra companies, companies like Adif, SNCF, Deutsche Bank, or companies like Ferrovial, uh, ACS, Vinci, you know, are, can, can be our partners, you know, on the, on the infrastructure side. And then uh, these companies could be selling slots to different transportation companies that could be any airline that today is operating could be a transportation company for the Hyperloop, any rail company, any bus, uh, you know, operator could be this kind of companies could have this value. So basically what we are doing is instead of competing with all of them, we are giving them the opportunity to use our technology and to deploy in their areas, in the regions, you know, that they are very strong to deploy the technology together with us. So, and that will accelerate the implementation of the Hyperloop systems, and it's creating for us a business model that is very, very efficient, you know, uh, a light asset business model with all the advantage of the infrastructure projects that is like big revenues, uh, long-term revenues, and, you know, very 
very um, strong uh, customers, you know, but without the disadvantage of having to deploy by ourselves the structure, the capital, and all that to deploy this. Yeah, very stable business uh, when you're talking about uh, something that's planned to be operating for decades and decades. So United Airlines just made some news uh, that they have committed to buy some boom supersonic passenger jets for their cross-Atlantic journeys. It sounds like uh, United Airlines could one day be uh, operating within Hyperloop. Definitely, definitely. You know, I think that uh, all the airlines uh, around the world, they, they need to think in the Hyperloop and all the transportation companies, they need to think in the Hyperloop as an opportunity, not as a threat, you know, to their business, especially if they collaborate with Hyperloop PT. Our model is, is that, you know, so we are open to collaborate with all of them and they could be become, you know, uh, an important stakeholders, you know, of this new industry. Yeah, and, and, and it's a big win-win because you don't need to have uh, loud, polluting planes that are flying relatively short distances, uh, taking off and landing and all these things. Absolutely. That, that's something that, by the way, is already happening. You know, in France has already banned the, the travels in the, in the short-haul flights, you know, uh, less than two hours or three hours that the cities are connected by high-speed rail, you cannot fly anymore. They are talking about the same in Germany and in different countries of the European Union, and it's going to happen, you know. So basically, we have a system like the Hyperloop uh, that can connect the cities from city center to city center in two to three hours, you know. Continental travel for airplanes will make only sense in the routes that doesn't have economical sense to build a complete infrastructure. But in the main routes, it uh, will not make a lot of sense, you know. How far, how far does that go? Can we go, for example, coast to coast in, um, in the U.S., or is that a little too long? What do you think? No, definitely we can do it. We have experience that I always put as a sample. Uh, we know uh, that um, people, uh, you know, right now when you think about high-speed rail against, against airplanes, when you connect a city for less than three hours, Basically, people wants to take the, the 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 train, you know, and they don't take the the flight. Okay, three hours city center to city center. That, but of course, uh, we are talking about something that three hours could be six hundred kilometers. Okay, three hours with the hyperloop, you'd be talking about two thousand kilometers. Okay, or even more. Okay, so uh, we are in hours competing with the airplane. So we believe that the long distance make perfect sense too because at the end of the day, you are going to be competing with, uh, with airplane uh, speed, even, you know, with a much more efficient way of uh, arriving to the station, because the station will be in the city center, so that's that. No, no need for big airports and, and all the big runways and all that land that's, that's wasted right now. Now, that's fascinating. I, I, I hope, to, uh, hope to be able to get on, a, get on a Hyperloop and go to New York for dinner from San Francisco <laughs> in not so distant future. Um, one, one other thing I want to talk about is the hyperport. So it's a much lesser known uh, part of something that uh, Hyperloop TT has been developing, but it makes perfect sense. Talk a little bit about what, what is hyperport and why you're working on that as well. Yeah, uh, we, uh, hyperport, uh, we did a joint venture with the Port of Hamburg uh, to develop the hyperport. Uh, Hyperport is the Hyperloop of containers, okay? Basically, you know, 
uh, in the in the normal hyperloop we can also move uh, goods you know uh, uh, ULDs and, and pallets and parcels you know but when we want to move containers you need a specific uh, configuration so basically hyperpore is the hyperloop of containers plus the interface with the port operations so today we have a big congestion in a lot of ports around the world and we feel that there is a great opportunity to create inland ports, even inland ports very close to the center of the countries or the regions that they are serving, you know, and, you know, connected that uh, from, uh, from the seaport. So you don't need to have too much uh, uh, land devoted to the port operations, you know, that normally they are in the middle of the city centers. You don't need to have a lot of trucks going through the city, you know, to arrive there, like the problems that you have in Los Angeles, in the, on beach or the port of Los Angeles. And these kind of problems you could solve it, you know, putting all the logistic operations uh, on inside of the territory, you know, and connected with a very simple connection of a hyperport system that could move containers and put containers in the in the system again every 40 seconds. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, you can you can solve a lot of the maybe not the last mile, let's say, but everything just about to it. Uh, you can shoot the containers out into the middle of the into the middle of the country, let's say somewhere in Europe. Uh, if we're talking about going from port to more landlocked part of it, uh, but most importantly, I, I guess for me is that um, you're freeing up a lot of that very expensive, very nice coastal uh, real estate <laughs> where people live in. Absolutely. Absolutely, that's a very good way to see it, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, you have uh, cities that they have, uh, they have a lot of land devoted to port operations that could be used for a much nicer way of use, you know, in, in front of the, of the sea, definitely. Some of the most uh, valuable land here in California, that's for sure. Now, you know, through all of this, it's been quite a journey for, for you and the entire team. You've had a lot of challenges. What's the biggest challenge you've had in realizing this vision so far? Well, I think that the biggest uh, challenge, uh, if you ask me this question like one year ago, I would tell you that, or, or even before the pandemic, I would tell you regulation, okay? Uh, but uh, fortunately for us, you know, uh, with the greater wave and then with all the problems that has happened with the pandemic all the the all the governments around the world they have realized that i believe is a good opportunity and we are advancing a lot uh, in terms of regulatory environment with the department of transportation of us and also with the european commission with digimove uh, the uh, the european commission has put iperloop as one of the possible system, you know, to boost uh, economy and renewable energy, uh, renewable infrastructure in the European environment. Uh, the Department of Transportation in U.S., they have developed a, a, pathword, a pathway to commercialization, you know, for a document. So we have advanced a lot on that. So my biggest fear that was that the regulation could not advance uh, as fast as uh, technology I think that that is not happening and we can feel that in a couple of years, three years more, you know, maximum, we will be able to have regulatory frameworks uh, around the world. So I think that, that uh, with that problem solved, I'd say that right now, basically for us, it's about uh, funding the initiative, no? 
uh, we, you know, that's uh, definitely something that everybody talks about sustainability, everybody talks about uh, financing the right things to do and all of that, but at the end, you know, it's not so easy, you know. So, but it's working, you know, we have been able to finance all our operations until today and now we are uh, working on, and on financing our commercial prototype, but definitely that's uh, always a challenge. Yeah, financing uh, big projects like this, this is not uh, just a software startup <laughs> that you can finance an app. It's uh, definitely a much bigger vision, even with this uh, crowdsourced model, it still takes a, a lot of fuel to get there. Now, I wanted to ask one last question and kind of bring it back to to your personal side. You know, knowing what you know now, what advice would you have given your 20-something-year-old self at the beginning of your career? Wow, that's a very good question. Look, I'd say stop every five years and understand if you are in the right sector, you know, and if your capabilities, your experience and everything that you can give to the world, you know, it's being used properly because you are in the right sector, in the right company and all of that. I'd say that if if I have to give a, a, an advice to my kids, I, I already have kids of 21 years old, okay? So it would be that, no? Uh, first of all, do what you like, that's clear. But it's really, really important to stop every, I'm not going to say every year, you know, that's crazy. You know, the, in your professional career, you need to have some, time to develop things, no? But I would say that every five years you need to sit down, uh, talk to yourself and say, first, what I'm doing is, is you know, something that I'm enjoying. And second, and very, very important, am I in the right sector? Am I in the right company, you know, to, to, to develop all my skills and all my capabilities and to be sure that I'm giving to society everything that I can do? And I think that that has been... Um, um, a clear thing that I have learned, especially in these uh, last seven years, no? where I have found a project that is really amazing, that really can change the world, and that has changed drastically also my life. This was our conversation with Andres de Leon, the CEO of Hyperloop Transportation Technologies. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to give us five stars in your favorite podcast platform and share with your friends. See you on the next one. And in the meantime, you can always find me at golem.net.